On this episode of New York Minute in History. Once upon a time, the land was all owned by a handful of big shots. The anti-rent movement isn't just two counties. It's a big regional movement. It has substantial political power. And then there's violence. We learn about the anti-rent wars that swept New York State in the mid-19th century and how tenant farmers came together to oppose the patroon land system. It's all up next, right after this. From the Irish invasion of Canada to the early days of the movies, if you are interested in broadening your understanding of New York State history, then this is the podcast for you. I'm Susan Hughes, historian and archivist for the William G. Pomeroy Foundation, a proud sponsor of a New York Minute in History. The Pomeroy Foundation is a philanthropic organization based in Syracuse, New York. One of our main initiatives is to help people celebrate their community's history by providing grants for historic markers and plaques. Here in the Empire State and across the country, we support a diverse range of marker programs that include commemorating food history, civil rights, folklore, and sites on the National Register of Historic Places. As the nation's leading funder of historic markers, the Pomeroy Foundation has awarded over 1,800 grants since 2005. To learn more about the Foundation's grant programs, visit WGPFoundation.org. That's WGPFoundation.org. Welcome to a New York Minute in History. I'm Devin Lander, the New York State Historian. And I'm Lauren Roberts, the historian for Saratoga County. On today's episode, we're focusing on a historic marker located at 1728 Helderberg Trail in the town of Bern, which is located in Albany County. The marker stands in front of the Helderberg Evangelical Lutheran Church, and the text reads, Anti-Rent Convention held here, January 15, 1845. Delegates from 11 counties petitioned state to end unjust land lease system. William G. Pomeroy Foundation, 2016. The church that the sign sits in front of is now called the Helderberg Evangelical Lutheran Church, But back in the late 1700s, it was referred to as St. Paul's Lutheran Church, and it played a really important role in the anti-rent movement. Before we start speaking specifically about why this anti-rent convention was important, let's give a little refresher about land ownership in parts of New York's Hudson Valley and explain why there was an anti-rent movement in the first place. First, we have to remember that in the early 1600s, it was the Dutch government that controlled the area that we now call the Hudson Valley. And beginning in 1629, the Dutch issued the Charter of Freedoms and Exemptions, which allowed for investors in the Dutch West India Company to be granted large swaths of land. We're talking hundreds of thousands of acres, and they were referred to as patroons. Once upon a time, The land was all owned by a handful of big shots. And the big shots would convey a piece of the land to tenants. I spoke with Dr. Charles W. McCurdy, author of The Anti-Rent Era in New York Law and Politics, 1839 to 1865. Tenants, they would hold of the landlord. In other words, they didn't own what we would today call the fee simple title. 
the way we own our suburban homes, for example, and farms, they would hold of the landlords. The true owner would be the landlord, not the tenant. This went on in perpetuity. So if you were the son of a tenant, you would inherit the same land on the same terms as your father had. And this would go on for, for generations, potentially. They could sell the land. They could also pass it down to their heirs so that the land would always remain within the family. However, they never owned it. They always had to pay a yearly rent. And that rent was usually paid in crops or in fowl, livestock. And the patroons had an overwhelming amount of power. It wasn't just that they were huge landowners, but they also had the ability to create their own court system, which meant that they didn't have to follow the same justice system as the rest of the government. They really had a feudal land system where they were the complete power over any of their tenants. So the patroon system starts as a Dutch creation. But in 1664, we know that England takes over the colony, and they continue the system as a manor system. They're still sometimes called patroonships, even after the British take over. The largest and most successful patroonship was established by diamond and pearl merchant Killian Van Rensselaer in 1630, and he called it Rensselaerwick. The manor of Rensselaerwick which occupied, except the northern townships in, in Rensselaer County, occupied the whole county, all the way to the Massachusetts line from the Hudson River. And the same estate extended through all of Albany County, except a little chunk called Coymans. That's 48 miles from the western boundary of Albany County to the Massachusetts line. That's 48 miles. And it was 48 miles up and down the Hudson River well over a million acres. Rensselaervik was passed down from generation to generation to the Van Rensselaer family, always the men, of course, the dominant heirs, until the early 19th century when Stephen Van Rensselaer III inherited the patroonship. And he had a different way of dealing with the tenant system. Van Rensselaer was a man known for great benevolence. He founded what's now RPI, built all the uh, Dutch Reformed churches in the whole valley. Uh, he was on the Board of Regents for the State University. He was the chair of the Erie Canal Board. I mean, his benevolence and stature as a good guy um, was legendary. He said, you can't get land on better terms anywhere in the United States as you can in Albany and Rensselaer counties, my land. Because if you enter the land, I'll give you a lease that will last forever, and you will acquire an inheritable piece of land. You won't pay any rent at all for the first seven years. And in return for that, I'm going to want my annual rents payable in wheat after seven years in perpetuity. Plus, if you sell the land, you owe me one quarter of the purchase price. Well, in Rensselaer and Albany counties, the population grew fivefold between the 1780s and 1820. So a lot of families took up this land. Now this could have gone on for a long time, but in 1819, there was a financial panic and there was an ensuing depression. Meanwhile, there's uh, new settlements in the West, in the Ohio country, and the Erie Canal was completed. 
and farmers are starting to have lower yields uh, because of the Hessian fly and other problems that farmers everywhere had, but they, their yields were going down. And meanwhile, their rents were going up uh, because the price of grain soared beginning in 1824. And by 1836, the price of grain was 10 times what it was in 1786. So basically the terms had changed, hadn't they? Right. What looked like a good deal in 1786, now suddenly looks like a very bad deal at a very time when your own yields of grain uh, are going down. You can't go borrow money to save your farm, to pay the rents. No mortgage company is going to loan you money if the first person on a foreclosure sale is going to be the landlord who's going to get at least one quarter, right? Right. <laughs> so, rock in a hard place. And then in 1839, Stephen Van Rensselaer III dies. Rents hadn't been collected since 1819. The tenants all thought, well, he's just going to waive the rents and maybe even convey the land to us in his will. No, he had debts himself. And the first job of the of his two sons was to collect and pay off those debts. Stephen Van Rensselaer III hadn't collected rent in 20 years. And he was a wealthy man, but he was also a spending man. So <laughs> the debts were high. And really, Stephen Van Rensselaer IV needed to collect all of the rents, including back rents for the last 20 years, in order to pay off his father's debts. So now we're in a situation where there are thousands and thousands of tenants who haven't paid rent in 20 years. Wheat prices are not the same as they were. The lands are not as productive as they had been in the past. And as you can imagine, the tenants were not thrilled about this change in policy. They held a meeting. And on the 4th of July, they declared their independence from the so-called patroon of the manor of Rensselaerwick. Farmer comes to town with his wagon broken down. The farmer is the man who feeds them all. If you only look and see, I think you will agree that the farmer is the man who feeds them all. The farmer is the man. So what do the patroons do at this point? Well, they involve law enforcement. The indentures through which 10 families entered the land in the first place provided that if rent was unpaid for 30 days, all the landlord had to do was to show up with the sheriff and grab anything he saw and sell it to pay the rent. Good way to make sure that the rents are paid if the landlord can just show up and take tools or growing crops or chattels and sell them to anybody and then who would bid on them. But the second way is just to eject them, just to evict. Put all the, uh, all the farm implements and stuff in the road, toss them off the land, and then you can lease it forever to somebody else. They start sending essentially the sheriffs and law enforcement of the era into these communities to break up these organizations or organized meetings that are taking place among the tenants. And that does not go over well with the tenant farmers. 
And we have to remember that the side of the law is on the side of the patroonship because these tenants have signed leases which state that they will pay a yearly rent forever in perpetuity. So the attempts to uh, coerce don't go over too well, as I noted. Many of the law enforcement officials and sheriffs are actually run out of these small towns and communities after being tarred and feathered. They uh, threaten county officials, all of whom are elected, that if they show up trying to distrain, that's the process of just grabbing any chattel and selling it, or ejecting a family, uh, they're going to go home in a wagon. Uh, we're going to tar and feather the customs informers. Well, we're going to tar and feather sheriffs who try to collect money from us on behalf of the pretended patroon of Rensselaerwick. Now we got politics deeply involved. If the county officials won't do their job and they didn't want to after several attempts, the third attempt, uh, they raised a local militia company in the city of Albany and marched out toward a little town called Reedsville. It's about 20 miles to the west up in the Helderberg Hills. And they met a screaming mob of thousands. So if the sheriffs can't enforce the law, they asked the governor. There are about as many Democrats as Whigs in Albany County in 1839. Uh, the governor and his friend Thurlow Weed are very good at counting votes. So it begins. Governor William Seward, later famous as Secretary of State under Lincoln, he promises land reform. Mm -hmm. He calls the leases in force on the manor of Rensselaerwick anti-Republican and oppressive. That's strong language in 1830. Anti-Republican and oppressive. And he calls for their abolition. So the anti-rent movement becomes kind of a political hot potato as both the major political parties at the time, the Democrats and the Whigs in New York, try to co-opt the movement and use it for their own political gains. And because it's so large and, and encompasses so many voters, it really does have a political effect. And so both the Democrats and the Whigs kind of take turns siding with uh, the anti-rent tenant farmers and saying that they're going to affect change through the legislative process or through other legal processes, but they're never really able to do that. So Devin, you know, we're talking in particular about the Manor Rensselaerwick, but there were others, like mm -hmm. Livingston Manor, what happened? Why is it that these manors live on and we don't hear so much about the other lower counties? I think that's really interesting. And we're talking about a feudal system that even in Great Britain hadn't been used since like the 12th century. But it was still in use even after the American Revolution, right? We're talking about the early 19th century when Stephen Van Rensselaer III dies in 1839. That's decades after the American Revolution, right? Where we're supposed to have uh, freedom and equality and all of these things. So why does the patroon system continue on after the American Revolution? It's really because those who sided on the side of the American cause or the patriot cause during the revolution were allowed to keep their patroonship intact and with the system in place. Those who were loyalist and stayed loyal to the king, they lost everything. So um, that's really how it continues on. 
In the early 1840s, one of the tactics that the tenants used was to disguise themselves as Indians, and they called themselves the Calico Indians, which is a, a made-up name. But they would disguise themselves in, in robes and sheephead masks to hide their identity. And the lore is that tenants who needed help when the sheriff or deputies were coming to their farms, they would blow on a tin horn. That sound would alert the Calico Indians to then come to the defense of the particular tenant and they would drive off the authorities. Whole function is to make sure that nobody gets thrown off the land. That's mm -hmm. in the declaration, Andy Rander's Declaration of Independence on July 4th, 1839. Everybody pledges each unto the other that they will prevent the ejectment of their selves or their neighbors. People live that and becomes the most important thing in their lives for a long time. Now, the rents still aren't collected. The politicians haven't been able to figure how to abolish this extraordinary form of land tenure. And um, the landlords are getting impatient. And so they advance in 1844 on a couple of fronts in Albany and Rensselaer counties. And it becomes clear uh, to the leaders of the anti-rent movement that the best thing for them to do is to expand the number of families who are involved. So they organize an anti-rent movement in Greene County and they create a band of Indians, Tar and Feather the Sheriff in Greene. And then the guys who were trained in green march over into Delaware, where there are thousands of people, not to the Van Rensselaers. These are mostly Livingston leases. And then finally, the most famous Andy Rander of them all, Big Thunder, Smith Boughton, who was a, a country doctor in Rensselaer County. He, yields, he leads a band of braves into Columbia County. Now, the Andy Rant movement isn't just two counties. It's a big regional movement. It has substantial political power. And then there's violence. Before it gets better, it starts to get worse. There are more episodes of violence that are happening. Um, two people are killed. A young boy is killed by a stray shot at one of these clashes. And then actually a deputy sheriff is also killed trying to collect rent. In very early January of 1845, the governor at the time, Governor Bauk, actually called up a militia to disband the Calico Indians. And about 300 militiamen arrived in the town of Hudson from New York City and Albany to crush the Indian rebellion. And several dozen of the Calico Indians were actually arrested and charged with inciting a riot. And so this prompts the legal system and the political system to try to find a way to ease these tensions because the movement is growing and growing. And in fact, in 1845, which is when the anti-rent convention happens that is referred to in the historic marker, there are representatives from 11 different counties that are joining this movement. They pack in 150 delegates to the church in the town of Bern to talk about how they can 
use their numbers in a political way to affect change to this ancient feudal system. To learn more about the local legacy of the anti-renters and the convention of 1845, we spoke with Town of Bern historian Sandra Kisselback. From what I understand, there was people who came to the town from 11 different counties. Of course, the place was overflowing. Do you know what the reaction of the community was? Were the majority of people in Bern members of the anti-rent party, or was there opposition there? Do you know what the, the feelings of the surrounding community were? Yes, I think they were definitely supportive of it. We have a museum. It's on the second floor of an old hotel that people rented out when they were passing through town. There's about eight rooms of history, and they've got one huge sign that I know of that's uh, the poster that was calling people to rise to the revolution, take up the ball of the revolution, I think it says. That's the first thing you see when you walk up the stairs. And then one Mm. thing they did, which was phenomenal, I thought that in 1975 they had the man who wrote Tin Horns and Calico, which is quite an in-depth write-up of the Antirent Wars, asked them if they could reprint that book, and he gave them permission. So they did that for the Bicentennial and that... uh, really brought more attention to the anti-rent wars. So the history of the anti-rent wars are pretty well known in your community? With the older people, I think. And then there's one teacher in the Burnock School who makes the kids aware of it. The school allowed the children to walk to the museum, which wasn't that far away, and we still have a lot of interest in the town, and I think we'll get it back going again. Patriots, hail sacred day, our fathers broke the tyrant's sway. Let earth resound with notes of glee, it is our nation's jubilee. Shout, brothers, shout, shout, brothers, shout, loud sound the horn upon the horn of Independence Day. So in the New York State Legislature in um, 18, I believe it was 1860, the last remnant of the anti-rent movement, still has a legislative agenda. And that agenda is worked into a statute, the Anti-Rent Act of 1860, on which the New York Supreme Court declares unconstitutional in 1863. But that ruling came down just as all the troops uh, in New York were either putting down the draft riot in Manhattan or out on the front in Virginia. So there's not an armed body of men that can go and clean out the last of the anti-renters in Albany County till the grand review of troops in the aftermath of Appomattox in 1865. Almost immediately after Appomattox, they march into Albany County. They go to a guy named Ball's house. He'd taken a case all the way to the New York Court of Appeals. And... Um, Ball had, had already been ejected in 1860. Uh, they put all his furniture and stuff out in the road. And then the retinue went back to Albany. And as soon as they left, they just moved everything back in. <laughs> <laughs> so the Albany County Artillery actually uh, marches out with cannon and lots of weapons. Uh, there's a lot of talk, Civil War talk, because this is like putting down the rebels, buddy. Let's proceed with the work of confiscation, says the Albany Evening Journal. We've confiscated their slaves, and let's confiscate these rebels' lands, which they have unfairly held without paying rent. 
in defiance of New York law, sometimes since 1820. There was no longer a way forward to abolish or even mitigate the effects of the lease and fee. And so the only solution was state violence as the only solution to uh, the secession crisis was state violence. There are massive ejectments. A lot of families, however, bargained with the then owner, no longer Van Rensselaer, but an investor. They pay the back rents, pay interest on the back rents, and they keep their land. But they're still holding in perpetuity, according to New York law. So what happened with this whole movement? Did they actually accomplish anything? Well, we know the Patroon system doesn't exist anymore. But it wasn't really a legislative or even congressional or constitutional amendment that ended things. And I, I would like to quote from Charles W. McCurdy's book and what he suggests happened at the end. And he writes, At the end of the era, the lease and fee no longer presented a problem to be solved. It served instead as a symbol of the self-defeating posturing by landlords and tenants alike. Both spurned compromised, both posed as noble victims deprived of their rights, and both blamed their unhappy fate on the corrosive interaction between law and politics. In 1865, nobody else cared. So he's really suggesting that after the Civil War, the issue just kind of disappears because people don't care about it and there are other bigger problems to consider in, in the nation. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have a legacy. And we're talking about it today. Books are being written, articles are being written, historic markers are being put up. So we know that it does have a resonance in this part of North America, this part of the United States. And we do know that um, it's historically significant because it was a major movement. It's still considered to be the largest tenant movement in the nation's history. I think for that alone, it really is important and something that we should be talking about and learning about and, and under, trying to understand. It's a very complex situation. It's a very complex uh, legal uh, definitions that are being used, but it's important for us to acknowledge that this was a system that uh, was archaic. Even of its time, it was archaic, and it was something that... Um, you know, those who were tenant farmers really felt strongly that they were being taken advantage of. And so did the, the landlords who thought, wait a second, you haven't paid rent in 20 years and you're, you signed this contract and you're supposed to pay us this rent and all we're doing is asking you to fulfill your contract. So again, they're being portraying themselves as victims. The tenant farmers are portraying themselves as victims in an uprise against these, you know, landed gentry and the wealthy elite. Uh, and meanwhile, neither side is willing to compromise. And then you have the political side of things where both political parties are trying to kind of use the issue for their own political means. So they're not necessarily interested in compromise either. And as a result, unfortunately, you have violence. You have people actually losing their lives, not in great numbers, but, but any number is unfortunate. And I think for those reasons, it's an interesting aspect of a very uniquely New York story. 
And it's a story that doesn't end with this, right? We still have tensions between landlords and tenants, not in the manor system, but certainly in um, situations where people are renting housing. We see this continue. We have a, a complicated relationship, not only with land, but with housing. And that continues right into the 21st century. We still have protests going on and we still have a situation where landlords and tenants are not willing to compromise with each other. And so the fight goes on. Thanks for listening to a New York Minute in History. This podcast is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio, the New York State Museum, and Archivist Media, with support from the William G. Pomeroy Foundation. This episode was produced by Jesse King with help from our intern, Elizabeth Urbancic. A big thanks to Charles W. McCurdy and Sandra Kisselbeck for sharing their time and expertise. To learn more about our guests and the show, check us out at wamcpodcast.org. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at NY History Minute. I'm Devin Lander. And I'm Lauren Roberts. Until next time, Excelsior! Excelsior.